0: Father, we're turning to what may be a very familiar passage to many of us. And we ask that we would not turn to it from familiarity, but that by your spirit, he would open our eyes to see new truths from this, that we would have, as Bruce prayed, a greater appreciation for Christ from this, your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, one of the iconic chapters in all of the Bible. It's read at weddings, and I've even had a friend tell me that it's been read at a funeral. Why? Why is this such an iconic chapter? Well, it's because it's the love chapter. It's one of the most eloquent sections uh, of Scripture, the, uh, almost lyrical in the way that it's written. Uh, people are drawn to it. People cite it constantly. And yet, it is probably one of the most misunderstood and least applied passages in the Bible. Our culture loves, and I realize uh, this sounds funny, but it loves to use the word love, does it not? How many, uh, how many songs uh, are built around this concept and this word, love, no matter what the genre of music is? How many poems and, and, and movies use this as its primary theme in the storyline? It's ironic that all the songwriters and the actors that, that write about and portray uh, what love is or looks like appear to have the greatest difficulty in, and struggle in finding it and keeping it and, and, and ultimately not understanding it. But see, this chapter here shows us what love is. It describes a kind of love that the Christian is to have and to demonstrate in the imitation of God that God is love, which means that love that comes from God is totally perfect. And we are called to reflect and, and, and mirror that love to perfection. But of course, none of us does it. That's why it's important for us to remember what it is supposed to look like. Because we're so easily satisfied with that sentimental and the romantic and the the superficial understanding of love. I think of all the young girls who are waiting and expecting that perfect guy that is essentially uh, the fulfillment of this whole chapter uh, described here, and also that romantic type in in the worldly sense as well, and how disappointed they are when they realize that this person does not actually exist. What is amazing is that this person does exist, and if all those girls who are looking for that perfect Prince Charming would discover Christ first, they would have a totally different perspective on what love is. And if all the guys who are looking for that perfect woman, the perfect girl, if they would understand what headship looks like, what it means to truly love someone, they would have a totally different perspective on what love is. And this chapter really plums the depths of what the definition of love is, of what love truly means. And in that, it can be a measuring stick for us by which we can examine our own lives to see whether this love is truly in our hearts and is manifested in our lives And in that sense, I would think that 1 Corinthians 13 would be the most despised chapter in all of the Bible instead of the most popular, because there may be no other chapter that so quickly reveals our shortcomings and sins like this one. C.S. Lewis once wrote, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for Him and we could probably add, and our love for one another. But it's important to read this section within the context of what is taking place here in Corinth. It's not as if Paul has been uh, writing this letter to to that church in Corinth, and then he decides he just wants to plop this uh, section on love in the middle. No, it fits within these three chapters of 12, 13, and 14 where Paul is dealing with uh, uh, people who cannot agree on leadership, and and, and they're using their gifts and and gifting uh, as a guide for uh, power and authority and and leadership. When, as we saw two weeks ago, that these giftings that have been given, they, they, they are given things. They're not uh, there's no entitlement. There's no, it, it's a gift. It's given to you. It, it's a grace gift. And they're not intended to cause division. They're not intended to divide us. But, but rather, these gifts that we're given as believers in the church of Christ are to strengthen us and to, to build one another up. And in the middle of these two sections, the the unity and diversity of the gifts and and the purpose of the gifts, as we'll see in chapter 14 in a few weeks, in the middle of that comes this chapter. But why here? Why in the middle between discussing the gifts? I think it's because Paul must give the essential condition for the proper exercise of any gift. Otherwise, the Corinthians will continue as they had been with the power games and the self centered carnal lives that they have been living. And I've broken this chapter into three subheadings Love gives meaning, love is action and attitude, love is everlasting, love gives meaning. As I said, Paul has to give the essential condition for the proper use of any gift. The Corinthians thought so highly of speaking in tongues. They were also very wowed by eloquent speech. And so Paul starts this section off by saying, "'If I speak in the tongues of angels,' Of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You Corinthians are so fixated on on speech and tongues, you could speak all the languages of the known world. You could even speak the language of the angels. Now, Paul's using hyperbole here. It's an exaggeration. But the point is being made, even if you could do these things, if you do not have love, you're just an annoying gong or crashing cymbal. Your mouth would just be making noise, not building anyone up, not contributing, nothing. Now that seems to set them right on that particular issue of tongues, but he doesn't stop there. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. In chapter 14, Paul will say it is better to have the gift of prophecy than the gift of tongues because prophecy is an understandable gift. It doesn't require interpretation. But before he says that, and probably to prevent the Corinthians from then elevating prophecy too high as a gift, he says even if you did have the gift of prophecy and could understand all mysteries and all knowledge, even if you had that, if you don't have love, it is nothing. It is of no value, it serves no purpose. This reminds me of when uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and and they've just seen the conversion of Lydia, and there's this young slave girl who was demon-possessed, and she's going around and proclaiming, "'These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation.'" The girl is truth-telling. She's prophesying the truth of who Paul and Silas were, but it was not out of love that she did this, and so it is of no gain to her. In fact, Paul gets annoyed with her and eventually casts the demon out. It would be like hearing someone saying, I love you, when you know for a fact that they don't actually love you. And if you had faith to move mountains, to remove mountains, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's, he's not talking about saving faith, but the gift of faith. And yet, if you had the gift of faith to move mountains without love, it would be inconsequential, except that you can move mountains. It should be a great gift. See, a person is not measured by their giftings, but by their love. And without love, a person is nothing. And again, I think we tend to read romantic love into this, but no, it's talking about a, a higher form of love. Even if you perform the act of giving away all of your possessions and all that you had and delivered your body up to being burned, if you did that, what would you gain You would gain nothing if there is not love. So we see at the very root of all that we do and all that we are, if there is not love, then what gain is there? The frightening thing about what Paul is writing here is that these things can be done without love. It is possible to be uh, the greatest donor in the world and not have love. It is possible to sacrifice your very life and yet not have love. We see this in the way that Jesus talks with the Pharisees of His day. What was their chief fault? Was it something about their outward look, their outward appearance. No, it was their hypocrisy. They were sacrificial in their giving. They were sacrificial in their time. But all the while, they hated God's Messiah. They were at enmity with God. Love is higher than the gifts and more important than the performance. Love gives meaning to life. Second, love is action and attitude. And now Paul comes to the definition of what love is. We often think of love as a noun, as if love could be just reduced to um, a feeling rather than an action. And so we have this common phrase, fell in love or fall in love or fall out of love or fell out of love. Is it me, or does love sound uncoordinated? It keeps falling. It's this uh, chemical emotion uh, over which we don't have any control. It's either there or it isn't. But you see, that is romantic love. That's the definition of romantic love. It comes and it passes. But far and away, the use of love in the Bible is in the verb sense using active terms. Love is defined by what it does and what it doesn't do rather than what it feels like. How else can you understand the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself or Jesus' command to love your enemies? Love expresses the love Christ demonstrated in giving his life for the sake of human beings. Paul starts by saying, love is patient. Love suffers long and is kind. Who is it that throughout Scripture is described as being long-suffering? It's God Himself. How long has God had to suffer with the injustices of human beings with the the evil of his creatures since the garden of eden god has been forbearing and patient and long-suffering and yet when we are called to imitate god we are called to imitate him in terms of his love which suffers long and yet how many times do we feel like we've reached our end and we cry out that that's it That does it. That's the end. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. I I cannot put up with this anymore. I have a near two-year-old at my home, and my long-suffering is very short. By nature, by nature, we are short-sufferers. We don't enjoy suffering. We want to avoid it at all costs. And yet, this is the measure of our love. Are we willing to endure with those who hurt us or even those who we find annoying? And kindness is the the positive side of that. The good that we offer to others, not just putting up with people, but then in turn responding with kindness, with goodness. Love does not envy or boast rather than rejoice in the good that comes to others envy says I deserve that I desire that It is self-focused, and if it's left to uh, uh, smolder and build within, it can burst out with terrible consequences. If you're anything like me, and I'll be honest, have you ever had that case where um, you're going to have a meeting with someone or someone's done something and you, you, you start building a case against them in your head? Often I'm, I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking about a situation that's going to be worked out and, and I'm, I'm presenting this horrible case and I cast the person in the most terrible light and I can't even sleep because I'm so upset and so angered over something that hasn't even happened and, and often doesn't. Just a moment of honesty there. You see, that is the opposite of love. Boasting. Boasting promotes self. I want attention because I need it. Boasting shows a lack of confidence in one's identity. The Corinthians were boasting in in their gifts and in their knowledge. Paul says that is the opposite of love. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. You see, all of these are focused on the self. They are traits of selfishness. They seek what is good for you and not another. And that is our default in our flesh nature. I'm a survivor. I look for the preservation of self. I need to take care of myself. And if I'm looking after someone else, that means I'm not looking after myself. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. The wicked delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the uh, perseverance of evil, Love does not bless incest, as we read of in chapter 5. It does not bring up uh, selfish lawsuits, as we saw in chapter 6, or sex outside of marriage, as we also saw in chapter 6. But it rejoices in truth. Love is when we rejoice in seeing truth applied, whether it's repentance or confession of faith. It rejoices when it sees the, the work of God happening, when a community receives the good news. or It doesn't argue over which minister was more effective. It doesn't take sides. It, it, it loves to see restoration. It longs to see restoration. It longs to see salvation. It longs to see forgiveness. It longs to see unity. And then Paul finishes this section with these lines Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does all of that mean? It can be confusing. But love bears and endures and puts up with much. It doesn't forsake people when life is hard and your energy is spent. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In 1 Peter, Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. No one is perfect, but love overlooks the wrongs that have been done in an effort to reach peace and restoration. And love believes and hopes for the best, since it looks to God who can forgive sins and can grant new beginnings to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Belief and hope do not exist in a vacuum. They are anchored to the God of promise. When we talk about love as an action and an attitude, we have to look no further than love personified. In Christ, we have the perfect image of love. In Christ, we have the perfect display of patience. In Christ, we have the perfect display of kindness and selflessness, seeking of the good of his neighbor, seeking of the glory of God, not insisting on his own ways, but making himself a servant, one who bore all things, one in whom we can believe, one in whom we can hope one who endured all things for our sake. That is the ideal of love. And though we fall far short of that, we can be strengthened by Him. He wants to build us up. He wants to use us for His glory and His kingdom. I was talking with a friend the other day who's going through a great deal of grief with his family. And he kept saying, I just have nothing left to give. I have nothing left to offer. I'm completely empty. And I thought and and I said, you can't give anything because you have nothing filling you. You, you. Of course you have nothing left to give. You're trying to give out of your own resources and there's nothing there. You need something pouring into you in which you can pour back out into others. How can you drive a car continuously unless you stop to fill it up with fuel? Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that she can have a spring inside her that will allow her to never have to return to a well again. He's saying, if you welcome me into your heart and into your life, I will fill you up. I will give you the resources you need to love even the people that hate you. Love gives meaning. Love is action and attitude. Love is everlasting. Paul says love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Love, therefore, stands in contrast to the spiritual gifts, which are temporary. For the day is coming and will come when the partial becomes complete, when the little information we have is made whole when the gifts we need to support and build up will be replaced with the perfect. As wonderful as gifts are, what a blessing they are, they are only partial. If anything, they make us long for the full and the complete and the perfect grateful for the way that they serve and strengthen today, but looking forward to a day when they are needed no more. Paul illustrates this coming day using his own development from boyhood to adulthood. When I was in… Tru- when I, was in uh, I almost gave it away. When I was in college, I got in trouble not a phrase you want to use often, but uh, I got in trouble for causing uh, a disruption during the freshman orientation uh, class that was being run, and I was brought before a council of these older men who had leadership roles in the fraternity that I was a part of. And to cover my back, I quoted this Scripture as a preacher's kid would. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And I said, I had grown up, and I wasn't going to do this sort of thing anymore. The ironic thing was that most of these men would get up and tell stories about the pranks they used to pull and all the fun that they had and how they had such fond memories, but now they were older and wanted to prevent the same for us. Anyway, I'm not upset about that. Anyway, I quoted this passage in... No one corrected me." Because that verse has little to do with being a mature adult. This verse is about the spiritual gifts no longer being necessary when Christ returns. That verse packs a bigger punch than my young adult mind understood at that point. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. And so what we struggle over now, uh, the petty arguments we have in churches and in our homes debating leadership, fighting over whose gifting is more important, fighting over who has more knowledge, the day will come when the love of Christ is fully realized. The day will come when all of the partials and all of the not understandings and all of the, the questions will disappear because the full realization of our hope and faith and love will be with us face to face. I I, I don't think we can even begin to imagine what that day will be like. And when that day comes, faith and hope in this present age will no longer be necessary. We won't need faith because we will see it. The the, the fulfillment of where our faith goes will be looking at us in the face, and his reality of his kingdom will be complete, and as Paul says in Romans, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Love is the greatest of these because it is the purpose and the goal of faith and hope. And so faith rests in uh, and relies upon the God who in His great love sent His Son for the forgiveness of sins and and hope looks forward to enjoying uh, a relationship with God through Christ, uh, through the Spirit, for all of eternity. And love rejoices in the Beloved and finds satisfaction and joy in Him. So let us be people of love. As Bruce prayed, the, 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 there would be something that sets us apart when we go into our neighborhoods and, and, and talk to our neighbors and, and, and go to our place of business and, and, and have co-workers. So let us be people of love. As we put our faith and hope in Christ. We need faith and hope now because it's unseen. Trusting that that love that never ends, that that love that never fails us, that love that sustains us, that love that we reflect to the world, that love that we reflect to one another, that love that we reflect back to Christ until that day comes when we see Him face to face. So let us be people of love. Let it be the identifying factor of this church, of, of all the members of, and all the people who are here, that we go out of this place not honking our horns in the parking lot and, and, and running red lights, but, and I'm not trying to be legalistic, these are just the two things that came to my mind, but, but that we would be so identified with love that people would want to know more about the Christ whom we serve, the Christ whom we follow. And they see how much greater his love is than ours, our mere reflection of this love. Let us be people of love. Let's pray. Father, our world seeks after love more than anything else, I think. We use words like belonging and being a part of and... But all those things ultimately boil down to being loved. I mean, even being known requires some element of love. Uh, Sometimes we don't feel separate and other, and yet this is one thing that certainly separates us from others. For we have been recipients of the greatest form of love, true love, that selfless love that gives, that never fails, and will never end. While people scratch and claw for temporary and inconsequential. And so even if we have all these wonderful gifts, as wonderful as they are, if we don't have love, we are lost in a sea of wilderness. So, Father, may may we be people of love because we have been recipients of love. Because we have been forgiven much. We can love much and so bring to our hearts and our minds just how much we are forgiven through that shed blood of Christ that we in turn can reflect that love back. We know our world needs it. We know our neighbors haven't seen this type of love. They don't know it. And so they have anger and they have bitterness towards people. Give us that ability to be patient and long-suffering just as you are in the way we reflect that love. But ultimately, Father, pointing back to the source of our love, not that it comes from us, but it comes from you. You equip us with what we need. You put within us that spring of living water that we can love out of your resources and not our own. Oh, Father, that we would be identified as these people. Until that day comes, when together we continue in that love for eternity, for we pray this in Christ's name, amen.